Good morning, church. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Today's reading is taken from Job 42, verses 1 to 17. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Sophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. And, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kesiah, and the third Karen Huppert. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, if you can all keep your Bibles open to Job chapter 42. It's the conclusion, the final chapter of our series. But let's pray that God will speak to us um, this morning. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Job and for what he went through and for the record um, that is there for us, that these are written for us. Um, Lord, we pray now that you will speak to us um, this morning, that you would draw us close to you, uh, that we might be able to go through all the ups and downs of life with you by our side. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a, Dr. Samuel Johnson wrote, we live in a world that is bursting with sin and sorrow. And the question is, why? This past week, um, we were talking in the staff, um, but uh, one person said, this person was asking this question, well, why did God uh, plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the Garden of Eden? What did God expect? Uh, we might as well ask questions like, well, why did God create the sea? Why is that allowed to exist? That, that, the, the place that, that's a symbol of chaos and evil in the Bible. Why is it still there? Why is the Leviathan roaming around the sea causing chaos? Why is Satan roaming around? Why does God listen to Satan at all? Why is he still called the prince of this world? Which is what Jesus called Satan. Of course, there are some answers, and you can find them in any philosophy 101 classes. There's the free will theory. Well, the tree is planted um, because God didn't want us to be robots, but God wanted us to have an option of disobeying him, to be in actual relationship with him. Some people believe that some, some evil and suffering in this world is punishment for the things that we've done. And we see that in our lives, don't we? When we do bad things, we actually suffer the consequences of it. And evil, some people say, is necessary to prevent greater evil, like a surgery preventing a, 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 a spread of cancer or something like that. And the other way works too. Some evil is necessary to bring greater good. Uh, the good, something like courage. Actually, you can't have courage without facing some sort of evil. You can't have love. Well, you can have love, but you won't know the depth of love until you actually have this uh, evil that necessitates self-sacrifice. Right? With all these things, there are some answers uh, with a combination of these things, we think that we can't answer some of the evil that happens in this world. But once again, I look to the parents in Texas who are mourning the loss of their children, who were senselessly killed by this gunman. None of these explanations will be enough, will make sense of what just happened. C.S. Lewis was known for uh, the staunch apologetics, right? The books that, uh, that, that defends Christian faith, the Christian faith, and explains it to the wider world. He wrote actually two books on the problem of evil. The first book is called The Problem of Pain. It's an impressive philosophical work. It's, at the, uh, it's in the bookstall if you, wanna, uh, if you want a copy of it. You'll find some of the arguments that are made there, uh, here in this book. But he actually wrote a second book on evil called Grief Observed. Grief Observed was first published uh, with a pseudonym, under a pseudonym, because the publishers didn't want to compromise Lewis's reputation as an able defender of Christian faith, because in this book, he mourns. There's just mourning. He talks about how he cries out to God, and God seems silent. 
Here's what he says. For example, talk to me about the truth of religion. I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion. I'll listen submissively. But don't talk to me about the consolation of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. If you think that Christianity will somehow console me in my grief, in my loss of my wife, well, you don't understand what I'm going through, he writes. Philosophical explanations just don't have, uh, don't answer the question satisfactorily. And if you're looking for an ending of, ending to the book of Job, that explains suffering, that explains why evil exists, that, that ties all the loose end, well, you don't get it. We never get it. God never explains to Job why he actually suffers. He doesn't even mention the fact that he had this conversation with Satan in chapters 1 and 2. Job is completely uh, ignorant of that conversation. He never gets any answers. I mean, I, rightly so, I think, because I think that scene raises more questions to me than it answers. See, the book of Job isn't to teach us, isn't written to teach us about how the world works. It's not there to teach us even about how God works. But it's not there to further our knowledge of how God rules over the universe. This book isn't a book of systematic theology. But it is a book about God. And that's what we saw last week. Uh, it is about the transcendence of God. How great God is, how awesome He is, how infinite His power, how infinite His wisdom, how infinite His goodness. That's why in chapter 4, uh, 40, actually God makes two speeches. At the end of God's first speech about the creation uh, and uh, uh, about creation and the animal world, Job says, I have nothing to say. He responds in stunned silence. And after he speaks, God speaks about Leviathan and Behemoth, Job does speak. And this is what he says, chapter 42, verse 1. He says that he knows who God is. One who can do all things, whose purposes cannot be thwarted. He admits in verse 3 that he spoke out of ignorance because he didn't know any better. And he repents. He says he spoke of things that are too wonderful for him, beyond his pay grade. He repents saying, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He hates the fact that he even spoke, that he presumed to know better than God. And just as though this book is about the transcendence and the greatness of God, just as well it's also about this great God's relationship to Job and his relationship to us. You see, God, when God says, I am God and you are not, so he doesn't mean that I am God and you are not, so I can do whatever I want and you can't question me. That's not what he's saying. You see, when you were younger, did you ever have the experience of just crushing ants? You know, you might be walking um, on a walk and you see ants and you just step on it. Right? Well, why do you do it? I don't know. Maybe you did it for fun. Maybe you did it because you can. Because you are not, you are a human being and these are just insignificant ants. And why should you be obligated to the ants? 
So you step on it. That's not what God is doing. That's decidedly not the picture of God in Job. Now remember, God was paying attention to Job. Every word that he was speaking, every word that everyone in this book he was speaking, uh, uh, that spoke, God was paying attention. Everything that was going on, God was paying attention because he loves Job. He loves Job. He loves his people. God must have also revealed himself to Job before. He was in relationship with Job. In chapters 1 and 2, God is referred to as Yahweh. A covenantal name, a name that is revealed to people that he has a relationship with. Job calls him Yahweh God. And in the middle chapters, his friends call him El, just a generic name for God. But in these closing chapters, once again, the covenantal name comes back. Job calls God Yahweh God because he's in relationship with Job. Job is in relationship with him. And because uh, he cares for him. And the biggest evidence that God cares for Job is just the fact that he speaks to Job. He's created the whole world, but he doesn't condescend to speak to anything else. But he comes down. After having listened to everything, he comes out of the storm clouds and he speaks these words to Job because God cared for what Job was saying. God cared for Job. Friends, I know, know that God cares for you, for each of you. Job felt that God wasn't listening. God was listening to every word. And when you suffer, you will pray and you will feel God who is distant from you. God who does not answer you. Friends, God is listening to you. God cares more than you can possibly imagine. And he couldn't give an explanation to Job, not one that Job could understand, but he did, he, 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 he gave Job something that he needed the most, himself. God, the creator of the universe, appeared to Job, to this man, and spoke to him, and that was all the explanation that Job needed. And he's satisfied with that. We, too, are made to be in relationship with God, with this great and awesome God. God created us to be loved by him, to be in relationship with him. And, of course, this is not an equal relationship. It's not a relationship of the equals. God is this great and awesome God. And there are things that we won't understand about God. But think about that. That is a good thing, that we're not in equal relationship with him. God, this great God, is in relationship with us, wants to love us, know us, and care for us, and live with him as our father. And we can see how much God cared for Job in the, in the care that he takes to restore Job, to um, restore Job and console Job. Right? He reconciled God to uh, Job, Job to himself by appearing um, to him. But he also takes care to reconcile um, everything else, to make everything else right for Job as well. He also restores uh, Job's relationship with his friends. 
God appeared to his friends and tells them, tells them that he is angry with them for what, he, what they said about God. Uh, their sin was reducing God. They didn't really have a relationship with God. Once again, you know, when, when they refer to God, it's El, generic name for God. God does this as if God is this machine that's predictable, that can be reduced to certain principles. They didn't have any relationship with God. They didn't know God in that way. And because they reduced God to these principles, to these, uh, the principle of blessing the, the righteous and punishing the wicked, God says, no, you spoke wrongly about me. But then God appears to them to make it clear um, to them that they are in the wrong and Job was in the right. Because what does God actually then ask them, these friends, to do? He calls his friends to, uh, to go to Job. To go to Job and ask Job to make these sacrifices for them. To sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams for them. To pray for them. You know, when, uh, and, and, and he says to go to my servant Job. Four times in verses 7 and 8, he calls Job to Job's friends, my servant Job. Four times. You know, what he wants to do is make sure that his, really, that, that, that his friends know that they were in the wrong, that Job was in the right, that Job should be honored and they should be shamed. Right? Uh, when Job was in the, the, the heap, scraping his body uh, uh, because of the pus, and the dogs were coming to lick his pus, they came to Job and said, this is your fault, something that you did, so, because you were evil in some ways that you are hiding. God is doing this to you. That was evil, and God wants to make right. God wants to make sure that they apologize to Job. And so they have to bring these sacrifices to Job and say, could you make this sacrifice for me? Could you pray for me? God honors Job amongst his friends. And in a lesser way, that's what he does with all of his relationships, all the relationships that abandon him. In verse 11, they all bring a piece of silver and gold ring to Job. They're being restored. Uh, they're, they're forgiven and they're restored um, to Job. And God blesses his marriage too. <laughs> Remember, uh, in, in, I think it was chapter 19 when uh, Job's wife says, even your breath, that stink, your breath stinks. <laughs> um, and uh, they now are now reconciled back. They have 10 children, seven uh, um, sons and three daughters. And we're told that the three daughters, they're named, they're called exceedingly beautiful, and they were so wildly wealthy that even the daughters are given inheritance. Uh, they get their land. Job's health is restored. I don't know what they, he was going through before, but he lives 140 years, double fold, double portion of life. We see how God takes care of Job. In that care, we see his love for Job. But let me make this very clear. Um, this, about this restoration, this restoration is not a reward for Job's faith or reparation for his suffering. And thinking about reparation or, um, uh, or reward, I mean, how can, he lost 10 children, how can you ever replace that? Having 10 more can't replace that, can you? 
No, you see, the whole point of the book of Job is that actually God does not do wrong. That God does not actually owe anyone an apology because he always does what is right. Well, then if God doesn't owe Job anything, why is God doing this? Why is God restoring Job everything double-fold? Why? Because he loves Job. He's not obligated, but he loves him. He wants to bless him because God is gracious. And doubling everything shows God's grace, right? He's not just making things right. Out of abundance of his grace, he's pouring out his blessings, undeserved blessings upon Job. No, it's not a reward. It's not reparation. It's not payment for his suffering. God doesn't owe Job anything, and yet God wants to bless him. God wants to restore him because that is who he is. And Job um, knew that even, remember Job, Job's response, initial response was, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew that. He wasn't entitled to any of these blessings. And the restoration, but the restoration foreshadows the future, our future. Uh, thankfully, we don't get what we deserve. Imagine if we did. We don't get what we deserve. No, we get much better. We aren't righteous like Job, right? Uh, uh, thinking that God is ruling the world in a wrong way, well, that's the least of my sins. There's so many other things that I've done that I regret, that I have repent of, that I'm sure I will continue to do. And yet, because of Jesus, we do not get what we deserve. And that is a good thing. Because in the end, we don't just get double-fold. We get infinitely more. On the resurrection day, on the resurrection day, when the heaven comes down to renew the earth, those who trust in Jesus will get infinitely more than what we deserve. Things that we lost, the people that we lost, things that they will be restored. We will live in a world that Jesus deserves, not what we deserve. And the blessing uh, that, that will be given will be just as real as the daughters that uh, Job had, uh, the wealth that was restored, the feast that he had. We will drink real wine. We will be with real people. We will live in real houses. We will live in this renewed creation that is rid of all evil and suffering and death from this world. And we will know then that that is not what we deserve because it will be infinitely more. There will be no question about it. That everything around us will point to God's amazing grace. That everything is given because of his abundance of grace and his goodness. Not what we deserve. And I hope that will get you through some of the difficult times. Looking forward to God's goodness being restored in this way. But as we conclude um, this whole book, just thinking about the renewed future, a renewed earth, I think begs the original question that the book posed. What do you love God for? Do you love God for God or do you love God for the things that he gives us? In order to get to the bottom of Job's relationship, God removed everything. 
to see if Job really loved God, if Job really had a relationship with God. And at the bottom of it, he, he didn't, I wouldn't say he, uh, he, he passed with flying colors, but he passed. Because throughout the book, he didn't just want things restored, right? He didn't say, why God would restore my, my children and, and, and my wealth? That's not what he wanted. Throughout the book, what did he long for? He longed to see God. He said, God, where are you? I just want to see you. I want to plead my case before you because he had a relationship with God. I'm reminded of my children. I think that is the purest relationship that I have. You know, when... Uh, things go wrong when their Legos are taken away or they get hurt or whatever. They come to me. They look for me or, or actually more like Mary actually. <laughs> um, but they look for their parents, right? Because they love their parents. You know, more than the Legos and more than the ice cream and more than these other things, they want their parents because they love their parents and they know that they, their parents give them these things. But even, even if you take away these things that the parents give them, they will still come and run to us because they love us. How about you? Is that your relationship with God? In your grief and suffering, in your grief and suffering, what does your heart long for? Does your heart long for just the restoration? Restoration of things, restoration of the people, restoration of health or whatever? Or do you long to be with God? Do you search out God? Because you know it's God who gives you all these things. Because it's God who is good in the end. Will you love God for who he is? And if you say yes, will you trust him when things go, don't go your, your way? When things go wrong, you can't understand what's going on in your life and in the world. And of course, when those things happen... You will cry out to God, I hope. And I hope you will want to see him. You know, Job, when he says in verse 5 that my eyes, my ears had heard of you, but my eyes have seen you, my, have seen you. Actually, he didn't see God, did he? He saw God in the cloud, in the storm, the voice coming out from him. But actually, there are people who have seen him. 2,000 years ago, God became a human being. We, we saw God. People saw God. The disciples ate with him, talked to him, lived with him uh, three and a half years. And they saw how God was in control. Control over, over sickness, over evil things, over nature, over death itself. That God has this power. And not only that, that they definitively saw God's goodness. How God cares for the lowest of the low. People who are nobodies. You know, people who are stricken by sickness. Or uh, people who are demon-possessed. Prostitutes. Sinners. They were welcomed into his presence. God loved them. God showed that he is love. And wearing a crown of thorns, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Friends, God cares for us. God loves us. That's who we, what we need to set our eyes on. And he's wise beyond uh, what we can imagine. He demonstrated it by making the place of the greatest evil, the place of the greatest 
good on the cross. And he rose again. He, on the Pentecost day, he breathed his spirit onto us as the deposit guaranteeing what's to come. And in the new creation, we will see him. In our grief and pain, often we just want the things back. You want your health back. You want your people that you lost back. You want the dearest things back um, to, to us. And we want these things restored to us. And we forget that actually all these things are given by God. All these things are just mere pointers to God. In C.S. Lewis's words, we are then too easily pleased. We're settling for much less Church, cherish your relationship in times of good. Look around you to all the good things and see God in it. You know, when things are bad and when you are suffering in times of grief, long for Him. Long for Him and not just restoration of things. Long for Him because He is the infinite joy. He's the fountain, the endless fountain of beauty and perfection and goodness. Long for him and long to be in relationship with him. And if you are in relationship with him, with Jesus, we will be able to go through anything and we will stand with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you are the fountain of goodness, beauty, perfection, love. You are the one that our hearts long for. Lord, remind us that in, when the times are good, Lord, help us not to be satisfied with things, with uh, this world, but help us to long for you in, even in the best of our times. And in the times of grief, in the times of loss, help us not just to long for restoration, but long for you, to know you as our source of all good things. We thank you that you long to be in relationship with us. Lord, help us to respond in kind and trust you and be with you until the day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.